Hello, and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies, old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is our eighth episode and final episode of season one, and today we are going to be talking about Disney's The Little Mermaid from 1989. As always, I am Zachary Ortz, I am one of your co-hosts, and I am joined this week, just like every week, by my good buddy Matthew Watkins. Hey Matt, how's it going? It's going pretty good, how about you? It's going good. I am uh, extremely ambivalent about this episode. <laughs> um, yeah, I am very excited about this one. Um, it is uh, one of my favorites. Uh, I think I have it at my number 50 all time. That's pretty um, high, yeah. Yeah, it's really high. It's, uh, it's you know, just one of those that I really love. And, you know... I just, uh, this week I kind of, I sat down to watch it and I kind of cheated because I watched it a second time because I liked it that much <laughs> and <laughs> we're, we're ready to record now. Okay. I guess I lied. I'm not, I'm not ambivalent about it at all. I'm pretty excited. It's just, I've been editing the podcast, so I realized that we say we're excited about every episode. So I thought maybe it would be good to, to mix it up. Changing it up. Yeah. Yeah. So one of these times I'll say, yeah, I just am dreading this episode. I don't know. Well, but. I am. What I am nervous about for this episode is I'm nervous that it's just going to go too long because I think there's a we both have a lot to say about this movie. Um, yeah. Oh, and I do want to say this is our first episode that it wasn't a full on request because it was on our short list. But uh, one of our listeners, a friend of mine, Polo had asked if we were going to do this movie and it was on our short list and so it helped helped clinch it for the final slot of season one yes it's a we had several things on our short list that we were trying to decide between um and once we got the request it also just made sense as we started off with toy story which was the the beginning of pixar we had snow white which was the beginning of disney and then the Little Mermaid, which was the beginning of the Disney Renaissance, so mm-hmm. it all fits with kind of the theme of this season as as beginnings go. Yeah. Uh, so why don't you go ahead and start us off with your personal history for this movie? Yeah. So um, last week, after we had recorded, I you started planning for doing a Little Mermaid, and I figured that I would um, call my mom just real quick and. Uh, ask her like what the experience was when I went to go see the little mermaid and trying to pin down the timeline. Uh, and it took us a conversation of about 30 minutes trying to figure out exactly, uh, exactly what this was. But, um, we had just moved to Alabama about six months before this movie came out. My dad was in the military and we'd moved to Alabama um, and it was the first uh, Christmas that my mom had ever spent away from home, um, like far enough away that she couldn't visit her parents and everything on the other side of the country. And so she was like, I can't do Christmas unless I go home. So she decided to, to um, fly home and then drive all the way back to Alabama afterwards. Oh, my um, goodness. <laughs> Yeah, and so while we were there, we went and saw The Little Mermaid, um, 
with my grandparents. And we nailed down that this would have been the first movie that I like really actually saw in the movie theater. Um, she, when I talked to her, she said that it probably like I had gone with them to the movie theater a couple of times before that. Um, but there weren't a lot of like Disney movies that had come out before that. And so this was the first one that was like a Disney movie in the movie theater that they were really excited for. They wanted to make sure that I could go and see it. And so this was, this is kind of my first, my first movie in the, in the movie theater. Yeah. I, because you had said that I, on a whim, I, I mean, I was two when this movie came out. I was born October of 87 and this came out in November of 89. And so I was looking at it and I was like, you know, this probably was not my first movie, but my first movie has to be pretty close to here. I was figuring it was one of the ones after this, Beauty and the Beast or Aladdin. And so on a whim, I messaged my dad and I just said, hey, what do you know what, what my first movie in the movie theater was? And he didn't know we were doing this episode on Little Mermaid. And he said, yeah, I think it was Little Mermaid. Let me check with your mom. And so he did, and yeah, I guess it was my first movie in the movie theater as well, although I don't remember it at all. I was barely over two, and we were in California at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a, I vaguely remember, um, there's a specific thing that I do remember, which mm-hmm. is that the movie theater where we went, they have like murals painted on the walls inside the movie theater. Um, and they had painted the movie theater, the inside of it, to look like it was under the ocean. Oh wow! Um, for this film, yeah. So it was, uh, it was incredible just the going into the movie theater and seeing it. That's pretty great. Um, yeah. And then it was. The, this is a story my parents have told. Uh, I have heard it told a lot about how I was as a kid. This was one of the movies that they would just put on for me when they needed to occupy me. So mm-hmm. I have seen it 50 plus 100 times, I'm sure. And they even told tell stories about how they'd like prop me up with pillows and then I'd fall down and then I'd start crying. They'd go back and prop me up again. And uh, I'd just stay there until <laughs> until I fell over again. I was just also... Just watching Little Mermaid until you pass out. I'm sure other so... movies as well, but Little Mermaid was one that was on heavy yeah. circulation. And... Uh, I was extremely scared of Ursula. Whenever Ursula came on the screen, I would uh, shake my legs and like I was trying to run away is what my dad said. Oh, that's amazing. That's great. Yeah. It's, uh, um, for me, the shark was always like, that shark is scary stuff. Um, and just like all the sunken ships and things, uh, I remember just sitting there in the dark in the movie theater uh, and that one just gave me the creeps and like uh, jump scares and things that made me jump. It's so. okay, man. That shark is going to get reformed in a couple decades, and he is going to learn that fish are friends, not food. It's true. It's a good thing. So, yeah. Uh, all right. So let's talk a little bit about 1989 and what was going on then. So we had just, we, the United States, not we, the electorate, of which we were not a part of, had just... Uh, had an election the previous year in 88. So George H.W. Bush was sworn in as president for his first and only term because he would 
uh, lose to Bill Clinton in 92 because the Republicans got mad. Well, this is what Wikipedia said, so I assume it has to be absolutely true that he lost support because his tax cuts weren't big enough. They weren't Reagan-esque enough, so he lost Republican support. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I re- you know, I remember the George Bush presidency uh, from when I was a kid. I don't remember, you know, the Reagan presidency really much at all, but... George Bush, I remember vividly uh, many different things from that time period. Um, during the George Bush presidency is when my uh, dad went over to the Persian Gulf War. So, you know, I was very aware of George Bush as a person. Makes sense. Um, and there was yeah. a <laughs> about, what did you say, a week or a couple weeks before Little Mermaid came out, the Berlin Wall fell? Eight days. Eight days. Um, yeah, eight days before The Little Mermaid came out, the Berlin Wall came down. Um, so, you know, that was a big deal. Yeah, <laughs> I, guess, I guess that would be uh, a pretty big deal. Um, yeah, you know, I, and I just can't imagine, like, um, basically, the, the Cold War ends a couple years later, but this is, like, kind of the beginning of the end, uh, and people are seeing the writing on the wall, and I just can't imagine the feeling that people would have had uh, going into the movie theater at the time period, um, you know, as it's Thanksgiving weekend when The Little Mermaid comes out. Um, and it just had to have been uh, had to have been a fascinating time period for people to be going to the movies. Yeah. Um, in somewhat lighter news, uh, in 1989, everyone's favorite sitcom, uh, Seinfeld, premiered. Or maybe not everyone's favorite sitcom if you're on the friend side, which uh, I have. Yeah, to I mean, be. I love Seinfeld. I'm more of a Seinfeld fan than Friends, and I know that you're the opposite. I'm the opposite. So. Although I, we did watch all of Seinfeld, so I do have a bit of a soft spot for it. Um, yeah, it's a. Uh, that was in what was it June something like that? Uh, I believe earlier so. In the year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then so. we had one more major event that you wanted to talk about here. Yeah, this one isn't this year specific. This is kind of um, the tail end of like the worst part of the crisis, but mm-hmm. I think it's really relevant to this film. Um, during the Reagan era, um, earlier in the Reagan era, the there was a um, virus, a sexually transmitted virus that uh, that was found in the United States was showing up, particularly. Uh, among populations of uh, gay men and uh, people that were sharing needles. Um, and uh, this was HIV and AIDS. And the Reagan presidency um, did very little effort to do, to do anything about it and to educate and learn about this virus. Um, and, you know... At yeah, the time I think it was period, worse than that. I think they actively, actively hid information and actively repressed information so that it wouldn't reflect badly upon them. Uh, yes, uh, this is <laughs> it's accurate. just killing gay um, people. So, um, and I went what back and care? watched. I went back and watched the press conference where they asked uh, Reagan's press secretary about this, and he just laughs the thing off 
as a joke. Um, and he's like, well, you don't have it, do you, to the reporter? And they all just laugh like it's the most hilarious thing ever. Um, and at that point, I think that um, uh, somewhere around 10,000 people had died um, of the virus. And, um, you know, it's <laughs> as they studied this more, they realized that this was not a sickness that only uh, affected gay people. Um, it affected everyone and, in fact, is spread in, in the world. Uh, HIV and AIDS is spread pr primarily through heterosexual sex. Um, and, you know, it's uh, just the way that this whole thing was managed was terrible. But it's I think it's important to understand that the the gay community um, and the LGBT community, it just really killed so many people at the time period. And I think that it's, um, you know, uh, it's really easy for people to forget um, just how devastating it was to the community. And I think, uh, you know, as myself, a bisexual person, um, sometimes I look back at like, why were there so few people when I was younger to look at as role models? And it's because so many of them died. Um, and I think a big part of, you know, a big part of why this is important for us to talk about is there's several people involved in the creation of the Little Mermaid, uh, who, uh, who were LGBT, um, and who were gay specifically. And I think that's really important context to understand looking at this film. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, uh, <laughs> an epidemic or a um pandemic did it become a pandemic did they classify it as a pandemic i think it's classified as an epidemic epidemic um, um with that said i am not a medical science expert yeah. so you know i don't know <laughs> i either way it I absolutely ravaged the theater community in particular i mean a lot of other New York-based and arts-based communities, but relevant to this movie, the theater community, because as we're going to talk about, uh, Alan Menken and Howard Ashman come from the theater community, and there were just so many artists who we lost way too early, and we got robbed of their work. We got robbed of getting to see what they were going to get to do, and... It's horrible. Uh, it really is. It really is. And, you know, um, one of those people was Howard Ashman, who was involved in this film. And, you know, it's just, um, I don't know, it's just, I, that context, I think, uh, colors so much of, you know, we're looking at the Disney Renaissance. Um, and this is the beginning of the De Disney Renaissance. And you see, uh, in particular, um, The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin. They're all made in this time period. And the same people are all involved with it. Um, and this was a huge issue that Disney was dealing with at the time period. Um, and so I think it's just an important... It, it's just absolutely vital context to understanding that entire time period of Disney's history. Yeah. Um, I do want to really quickly, uh, in here in one minute, I'm going to run down all of musical theater history just to get us to this point because we started <laughs> before Oklahoma and, um, this is now 
obviously after all of that. So uh, in 1927, we had uh, Showboat, which is wildly, widely considered to be the first musical. And then we, 10 years later, we had Snow White, which is what we started our season with this year. And then in 1943, we began the Golden Age with Oklahoma, which was the creation of the modern book musical. And the Golden Age ended in 64, which was when the rise of experimental theater started to come out. You got the Sondheim era through the rise of the concept musical in the 70s. And then, which brings us to, so that at this time we're at the tail end of Sondheim's career. He's only going to have two more major shows, three if you count Roadshow, four if you count uh, the new David Ives musical that we don't know if it's uh, if we'll get to hear it, but hopefully we do. And then at this time, Broadway was in the midst of the British invasion. Um, so I just think that's important context to know what world Mencken and Ashman were living in that then they got poached over to Disney for. Um, so let's talk a little bit about where Disney was here before we, and then we'll get sure. into our yeah. personnel. So we talked a little last week about how after Walt's death and uh, I think soon after Roy died as well, the company really was directionless and had, uh, they, they just couldn't quite figure out what to do. And so when I was looking online, I saw 101 Dalmatians cited as the last hit that Disney had had. Does that jive with your understanding, Matt? Um, that sounds about right, yes. Um, I, I don't know how big The Jungle Book was as far as box office. I know it was the last one that Disney was involved with, but I believe yeah. he had passed away before the film came out. Um, I, I don't know all these facts, the, the specific details perfectly, but it is around that time uh, when, uh, you know, Disney just kind of uh, drops off uh, dramatically. Yeah, they couldn't really figure out what they were going to do, and I've never thought of uh, The Rescuers, Fox and the Hound, Great Mouse Detective, um, Oliver and Company as movies that were underfunded, but I also haven't gone back and rewatched them as an adult, so I'll be interested if we go back to some of those to see how they feel with that knowledge that like they just didn't they weren't confident in their studio and so they didn't put the resources into them and yeah then, and especially animation the um the what they had kind of decided at the time period is they made these animated films and it's just really expensive to do animation <laughs> yeah. um it's really, really expensive, and it wasn't having a return on its investment for essentially everything after, like, 101 Dalmatians and Jungle Book. Um, so Aristocats, Robin Hood, uh, Winnie the Pooh, Rescuers, Fox and the Hound, Black Cauldron. Um, all of those, up until The Great Mouse Detective, were essentially uh, not really profitable. Um, and so the animation studio was seen as, like, this black hole that if you put money into it it just disappears <laughs> and um uh, and they were in talks to shutter the animation studio um in the 
in the late 80s um, around the time of like uh, the Great Mouse Detective. After the Black Cauldron, Mm -hmm. they were in talks of shutting down the animation studio completely. Um, So, you know, it was not good. What what a world that would have been. Uh, would have that that's an alternate universe. Yeah, and they 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 even went to the step of just moving the animation studio completely off the Disney lot, so like into a warehouse off the, you know, um, not even on the Disney lot, just in you know in the middle of um, what is it in Burbank, um, and. Um, yeah, it was bad, and they did that because they were trying to attract um, other kinds of films um, and like screenplays and all of that kind of live action stuff, and they just needed more space on the lot in order mm-hmm. to do that. And they're like, you know what, the animation folks, you can do your work anywhere. You don't need like offices and things. You can just go wherever and figure it out. So off they went, off the lot, um, and just kind of, you know, told it was their last chance essentially. Yeah, and they also around that time got new management. So Michael Eisner took over as CEO and put John Katzenberg. Um, is that who? Is it John Katzenberg? I think it's uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg. Jeffrey but... Katzenberg. Anyway, someone yes. Katzenberg in charge and who who got tasked with revitalizing the animation studio. Um, yes. And it's a looks to be a complicated story where we don't have to get into it too much but basically he was heralded as the person who saved the studio but i think when you look deep down into it there was a lot of other people who were working a lot harder and may i mean i don't want to say he did nothing he probably maybe either through some luck or some skill brought the right people in um but what ended up happening is his ego ended up taking over and he thought he should get credit for all of the success that had happened and (laughs) tried to do some Game of Thrones style power plays to ascend the company and then ended up getting shut out. And the company or the animation division continued to prosper after he was gone. So, uh, well, you know, I went back and uh, and went through a lot of um, behind-the-scenes making mm-hmm. of footage uh, for this film, and from the talk of the animators and the music folks and the storyboarders and just everybody working on the, the writers, all of that stuff, um, it sounded like Jeffrey Katzenberg was more of their um, the hurdle they had to get over in order to make the movie that they knew was going to be successful, if that makes sense. Hey, sometimes Um, you need a common enemy to unite as a group. uh, And it feels like that's kind of how things were. They felt they were under so much pressure. And um, one of the things they talked about is that uh, Katzenberg would come in and say, we just got to cut out more stuff. We're going to, we got to cut out half the fish. And we need to cut it just things like this because it was costing so much money. We can't afford this many fish. You can only have seven on the screen on this, you know, on this scene and all of that kind of stuff. And just constantly cutting things down and um, also constantly second guessing the decisions that they were making about mm-hmm. the story. Um, 
for example, uh, there's a great story from they took the the what they had and did a test screening and they brought kids in from the elementary schools. But this is before all the animation was done, so it was just in um, it was just sketches and they showed part of your world. And there was a kid that was there that was like five that dumped his popcorn like out on the floor and then was just like sitting there like picking up the popcorn and not watching the movie and Katzenberg panicked and he's like we have to cut this film no one's gonna or not the film we have to cut this scene the entire song of part of your world um because the kid dumped the popcorn out and wasn't paying attention and everybody in the studio went over and tried to tell him you cannot cut part of your world it is the center of the film without it the entire film falls apart and he just refused to listen to anybody and said we are absolutely cutting it uh until glenn Keane comes in later and says jeffrey you're just not getting it like that is one kid who, you know, was hyperactive and dumped out popcorn. You can't judge the entire film by that one kid. Um, and, you know, save the movie, essentially. Um, but, I don't know, it's, it's a weird story. <laughs> Certainly saved the childhood references for basically every millennial. Yes, yes, it's true. Um so yeah, and you know the other thing that we mentioned um, in our Pete's Dragon episode was that like kind of the animation star um, from the time period Don Bluth had left the studio after that film uh, and started his own studio, and that studio was ascendant and was making so many great movies. And the year before The Little Mermaid had made a movie called The Land Before Time, which was one of the biggest animated films of all time up to that point. And just a tremendous critical success. Uh, came out at the same time as the Disney movie Oliver and Company. And completely overshadowed Oliver and Company. And so it was just seemed like De Disney was in its death throes. Um, and that Don Bluth was coming and taking over the animation world. Yep. And then Disney decided... Well, I don't know how, how it ended up. But they ended up opening... On the same weekend again, the following year, The Little Mermaid opened opposite of All Dogs Go to Heaven, which was Don Bluth's movie. And uh, this time the tables were turned. Little Mermaid <laughs> ended up victorious on that one. Yes. Um, and uh, ended up victorious and then just turned into one of the films that had one of the leggiest films of all time, as in uh, that it kept performing well in the box office all the way through just for months, uh, something like 16 weeks, uh, that it was still performing really well in the box office. And uh, I don't think it ever hit number one, but it was constantly in the top three and um, became the highest grossing box office animated film of all time. Uh, during its run um, it's since been knocked down you know inflation and all that kind of stuff but it still holds up uh, it, when adjusted for inflation is one of the uh, one of the just biggest animated releases that's ever happened yeah I mean it's also probably the leggiest because they literally make legs in the movie also true yes also true yeah and uh, the just to uh, for point of reference, Back to the Future 2 opened the week after The Little Mermaid did. Yes, yes. Um, uh, Little Mermaid, I think, made $8 million that weekend, and Back to the Future 2 made $25 million 
on that weekend. So oh, uh, nice little, little context. Nice little spare change, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. Uh, so. so- so you already mentioned it a little bit, but um, did you want to say anything else about your reaction watching the movie this time? Um, so I watched it. I watched it by myself just to prepare for this, and then um, you know I just liked it so much, and uh, I had turned it on at night, and my daughter heard it, heard me watching it, and sneaked out and was watching like behind the the corner of the wall, <laughs> so that we couldn't see her. Um, and then she got caught that she was staying up. And so, Busted. um, I was like, you have to go to bed. And she's like, I want to watch it. So I said, okay, I promise that I will watch it with you, um, this weekend. And so, uh, I made her a promise to watch it. And then we watched it together on Sunday. And I just got to say that if you want to vastly improve your experience watching animated films, sit down with just a little kid and watch the movies and oh my it really just lands differently when you were watching it uh, watching it with a kid it really does it was so much fun to watch it with her on sunday i bet and how many times has she seen it is she she's well acquainted with the movie at this point yeah she's probably seen it 20 times or something like that yeah Um, yeah yeah, it's a well acquainted uh, knows all the songs but at the same time it's still it's still uh, I th- it's different sometimes when you sit down with the with a kid and watch it with a little bit more intentionality. I don't mm-hmm. know if that makes sense. So it's on all the time. She watches it all the time, but usually it's kind of like doing other things or uh, I don't know things like that. Uh, this time we sat it down, sat down with a lot of intentionality and uh, just uh, watched it together, um, and we're you know totally invested in thinking about the film, and so. I think she got a lot more out of it this time than she would would have or has other times. Yeah, so my experience watching it this time, I did not realize how long it had been since I had seen this movie. And it felt like I had seen it recently because I've seen the musical multiple times. My sister was in it on tour, and so I have went to see her a couple different times. And yeah... So the first two-thirds of the movie, I thought, were, like, infinitely better than I remembered. And then the last third of the movie was way worse than I remembered. <laughs> Oof. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that was that was my experience. But then, like, I don't know. I think if you're talking about, like, show construction or movie construction, you're looking at it through a modern feminist lens which we'll get into then that last third of the movie matters a lot but under all other circumstances like just in terms of personal effect on me I don't think it matters at all like I think about I was thinking about watching it all week and how much I loved it and how much I I was listening to the soundtrack and like the music's just great so it is uh, uh, yeah, the music's so good in this one. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about uh, the peeps who got us here. So we'll start with Ron Clements and John Musker. So these were the directors who were uh, <laughs> tasked with saving the Disney Animation Studio. Um, and they, once again, they 
haven't directed a ton of films, but they've done them all within the Disney studio, and they have a really high hit rate. So before this, their first film was Great Mouse Detective, and then Little Mermaid was their second film. And then they also have, in the midst of the Renaissance, Aladdin, and then following that, Hercules, Treasure Planet, and then uh, Princess and the Frog, and Moana. And I had not placed that this was the same directors as Moana. I, or I did not know that when I saw Moana that it was the same directors as Little Mermaid. And in some ways it feel like that makes a lot of sense to me. It feels like Moana is like a modern version of Little Mermaid in a way. It like yeah, it takes all like the it, it, Yeah, it takes a ton of the the same influences and, and you know, even a lot the of the visual act, yeah. Yeah, a lot of the visual style I think is t- is connected as well. So makes sense. Do you want to say anything else about the directors? Yeah, so Ron Clements and John Musker, it, you know, at the time period, these were not like the guys. Um, <laughs> no, they were they were like you know, Katzenberg was like, listen, if you want us to have your jobs, then you better save this movie and figure out something. I don't know. Good, best of luck. Um, and they're just working with the animation team, and they honestly just could not get this film to work. They were struggling with it, and it was it was really hard. And Little Mermaid had been, um, like, they had scripts and treatments and things like that running around Disney for just decades, like from the 30s um, uh, up until, uh, uh, you know, up until they made it. And so uh, it was just a hard one for them to figure out. Um, but... Eventually, eventually, working with storyboarders and working with Howard Ashman, who comes in later, they're able to put together this story that just was. Um, they they took the original um, fairy tale, and their idea was that they just wanted to uh, take that fairy tale and kind of t- turn things around so that it had an ending where the main character was able to achieve the goal that they wanted. Um, and you know, I think that's a, the, it's, uh, an important little, little idea that they came up with. And just along the same lines, you know, people didn't want to make this movie because it was a princess movie. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they kind of had this idea that it's, that it was going to be a girl's movie. And so then it was automatically going to do poorly. Um, and these guys believed in it. They believed in, uh, in the story of Little Mermaid uh, when no one else did. And, and I think that's a really important thing for me with them is they believed in it and they kept it alive when it was just the dimmest fire uh, and, you know, just like a candle flickering and could have gone out at any moment. Yeah. So that brings us to uh, Alan Menken and Howard Ashman. Yeah. The, so... They came over from Broadway. They had written, um, together they had written two shows. So they started on God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. And then Mm. they did a little cult musical that maybe people have heard of called Little Shop of Horrors. Um, I don't know. Excellent, excellent musical. One of Mm. my favorites. Yeah, just a great score. I don't know if that's common. It's common knowledge in the musical theater world. I don't know if it's common knowledge outside the theater world um and howard ashman did lyrics on 
one of my favorite musicals, Smile with Marvin Hamlish, which <laughs> ran under 15 performances, but uh, the star of Smile was Jody Benson. So that is how they yes. got hooked up. And yeah, then, and some, you know, I'm actually very jealous because Smile is a very hard um, play to get to see at this point um, because it was not considered a financial success. And, um, and But, like, the music, you can hear the music and you can listen to it, and I love the music. The songs are great. But actually sitting and watching the story is a very difficult thing to do nowadays, and I still have not been able to do that, and so it makes me very jealous of that. No, and there, I mean, I don't want to oversell it. There's some stuff in Smile that has not aged well, but the score is just unbelievable, and Howard's lyrics are great. Uh, the end of the end of Act One, until tomorrow night, is on my list of top ten Act One finales of all time. So definitely go go ahead and uh, there's no cast album unfortunately for the show, but you can find right. videos on YouTube and stuff. Actually, what am I talking about? We have a podcast. I'll put I'll put a link in the show notes. So <laughs> sounds good. Yeah, check that out. And then Howard Ashman came over to Disney to work on some lyrics for Oliver and Company. Yes, and that was how he got the in at Disney. And then I believe he brought Alan over when it was when it was like, hey, we have this this mermaid project that might need some music and lyrics and yeah and um it, that is the correct timeline here they brought alan Menken in afterwards and alan Menken said you know i did little mermaid because howard was doing it and um i wasn't going to miss out on doing a project with howard and so you know that's that's how alan Menken got in and how alan Menken um wrote so many disney musicals afterwards um you know, really became one of their go-to guys for just, like, decades, Alan Menken. Um, and, you know, it's a really important part of that. Um, Howard Ashman, for me, you you know this, is just, like, uh, I just have this, like, feeling of, like, a connection and a love for Howard Ashman. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I, I just, uh, I kind of obsess over Ho- Howard Ashman, and I read a lot about him, and have watched uh, multiple documentaries about uh, Howard Ashman. Um, and it's just fascinating uh, watching the back of the behind the scenes stuff for The Little Mermaid. Um, and they're talking about it. And these guys, just as they're talking through the film, you can see just the distress on their faces and the stress as they're trying to figure out how to make this work. Until the moment Howard Ma- Ashman shows up to work on the film. And it's like he just comes in and touches the film and it's like magic occurs and everything starts to make more sense. Um, and, uh, every single person like involved with, with the production had different, like Howard Ashman stories of the way that he like, um, uh, essentially brought life into the film. Um, and this is one of the things Howard Ashman was known for is always having his fingers in every pot, uh, of whatever project he was working on. He, he just, had a love for what was going on and so he was he'd go down into the animation department and work with them he would uh he would coach the voice actors as they were going to perform um there's a lot of video footage of him coaching jody benson through part of your world um and it's just uh, incredible um to see that and um you know 
all the other parts of it with the story and all of those things. He was very intimately involved. And um, when you when you look at the people that are, were involved um, talk about this film, they usually describe it. If there's any one person that you could attribute the creative vision for this film uh, to, Howard Ashman is the one uh, that they generally refer to. Yeah, and we... The we both watched it came out I think about a year ago now there was a new documentary about Howard Ashman that came out yes. on Disney Plus so we'll link to that if it's something you're interested in there's a lot of great footage um, the thing that I really took away from that documentary is that on top of being a fantastic lyricist which uh, I'm probably going to talk a little bit too much about later in the episode the thing that he was uniquely good at as a human, but also uniquely good at for a lyricist was his understanding of storyboarding and his understanding mm -hmm. of when and how the movie needed to move from point A to point B to point C and how the minutia took you from there. So not just where you needed to get to, but what propelled everything forward. Yeah, and this is what the, the folks say that are, were involved, that Howard Ashman came in and he just understood how a musical needed to be told in a way that the animation department didn't. Um, they were not, you know, musical theater people. Uh, the animated films that had come out before this were not really, um, you know, they weren't really influenced by musical theater that deeply. They were kind of just traveling parallel and they were figuring out, out their own things. Uh, and Howard Ashman understood uh, uh, the concept of like a Broadway musical and how to tell these stories and how to make all the story beats we work uh, and really took the things that they had and synthesized them uh, into a, a story that uh, just everybody kind of fell in love with. And it became one of the flagship uh, um, projects at Disney after Ashman, Ashman got involved. Um, and then the other thing that he did that's kind of interesting is he had the uh, music, he was working on the music in the same places where the animators were working, uh, which is not actually what typically happens. So oh, they'd be walking by and they'd hear him like working on whatever song, you know, Poor Unfortunate Souls. And they hear it and they're just like, okay, okay, okay. And it's driving the story as they were creating that, which is an interesting little tidbit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Let's uh, stop talking about Mencken and Ashman because we're going to talk about them plenty <laughs> with the rest of our scenes. Uh, who else do you have for personnel? So the other two people I've got for personnel are both animators. So uh, the first one that I want to talk about, uh, we have Andreas Deja, and he is um, one of the Disney legends. Um, and he is he animates for Disney for the next 40 years um, uh, he starts oh, in 81 <laughs> and for 40 years is animating for Disney. Um, and so he still, he still works for Disney, still, uh, still animates with them. Um, and he has just incredible, uh, an incredible record of things that he's worked on. Um, and he's doing character animation for these folks. So people like Roger Rabbit in Who Framed Roger Rabbit or King Triton in this one or uh, mm. Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. Jafar, Scar, Hercules, uh, Lilo, um, uh, Mama Odie in The Princess and the Frog, um, Tigger in Winnie the Pooh, and then 
Um, just, you know, so many different uh, films where he's essentially the lead animator and an animating, uh, a supervising animator on uh, the most important characters and some of the most important characters in the story. Yeah. And who else? Do, who Who's your next next peep? Well, before I go on to the oh, other ones, okay, I, did have, I did have slightly more to say. Uh-uh. Um, so, uh, Andreas Deja is also, what's really important about Andreas Deja is um, he's one of the super an- supervising animators, and he has a huge impact in the decisions they're making, especially even like the story, the story decisions that are that are happening in these stories. And he is also a gay man and was uh, was mm. openly gay during like this time period, and um, has a huge impact on the style and the way that the stories were being told, um, and. Uh, there's a lot of discussion in um, queer criticism about Andres Deja and his influence on different characters over over the years. And I think that's a really important thing to look at. Um, and, you know, when you look at King Triton in this film, uh, that he's kind of the guy that created King Triton, you know, I just don't think I just don't think that a straight man could have done uh, King Triton the way that, that he did it. Uh, that is, uh, King Triton is a specimen, uh, shall we say. <laughs> it, is, it is a fascinating figure uh, to look at. Um, He's kingly. Yes, he is. Yes, kingly um, is is the operative word. Um, and you know, it's just a re- really interesting, really interesting person involved in this project. I I didn't know. Now I kind of want to go back and rewatch with that with that in mind. Yeah, yeah, it's it's good stuff. And then, so the the last one here to talk about is Glenn Keane, um, and Glenn Keane is the animator that's um, the supervising animator for Ariel. So he's the he's mm. uh, you know the main character of the film. He's the animator that kind <laughs> of uh, okay. brings her to life. So this is really important. Um, in 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 a lot of ways, you can think of like Jody Benson and Glenn Keane as creating the performance of Ariel together, but Glenn Keane is also our uh, Stream It crossover TM. for this episode. Um, yes, Stream It crossover TM. Uh, Glenn Keane was also a character animator on Pete's Dragon. Oh. Uh, so he was one of the main, you know, uh, animators on the dragon itself, um, and uh, you know, supervised by Don Bluth at the time period. So you can see that kind of uh, um, crossing over, and you know, he, that was one of his earliest films that he did, uh, and then really takes off uh, throughout this other time period. Um, Glenn Keane uh, creates a lot of just incredible and iconic uh, characters. So, for example. Um, his credits include, he did the supervising animation for, um, for Ariel in this one. He also did Professor Radigan in The Great Mouse Detective, so that's worth mentioning. He created The Beast in Beauty and the Beast. He was a supervising animator for Aladdin in Aladdin. Mm -hmm. Uh, he was a supervising animator for Pocahontas. Uh, the supervising animator for Tarzan, the characters on each of these. Right, Captain right. Long John Silver in Treasure Planet, Rapunzel in Tangled, um, 
And he, let's see, other things that he did. He also recently won an Academy Award in 2017 for the uh, short film Dear Basketball um, starring Kobe Bryant. Um, and if you haven't seen that one, uh, it's probably worth linking. There's a, It's uh, available on Vimeo. You can watch it for free. Um, and it's an excellent short film uh, that he animated. But the real reason I wanted to talk about this guy, uh, Glenn Keane, is... He also is, um, has aphantasia. Oh, no way. Yeah, I've been saving this because I, I was excited to tell you about this. Oh, I'm stoked. Yeah, so um, it's a... And at the time period uh, when this was coming out, out, aphantasia was not very well known. Um, and I had um, sent over well, to you a sketch. It wasn't known at all. The term wasn't coined until 2015, I think. Yeah, it's a well. This this idea of like um, um, some of the uh, what I'm trying to say is the Glenn Keen at the time was one of these people that was like there. I'm seeing the world differently or understanding the world differently than yeah, other we should, people. Yeah, we should we should probably explain. Aphantasia is Good uh, the inability to conjure images in your head. Um, yeah, I think we've probably mentioned it on the podcast, but haven't. I haven't explained what it is. So I'll, I'll link to the New York Times article on it or in the show. Yeah, notes. so, and it's it's very recent that people have kind of figured this out. Um, and one of the most prominent um, uh, people in, you know, in uh, celebrities that's talked about aphantasia is Glenn Keane. And he's done a lot of talks about aphantasia and it's the way that it affects his art. Um, and so... I sent over to you, there was a sketch that he did of Ariel. Um, and when I, when I looked at this sketch, it could just kind of, kind of became clear the way that he talks about his art is he just makes scribbles on the page and then gradually takes the scribbles away until, um, until a character appears. Uh, oh, and, wow. and uh, one of the things that he talks about is um, this idea that um, in his in his opinion and in his experience, there's uh, a lot of people that are that have that are aphants or that have a- aphantasia um, that work in the art world because of this idea of like putting um, putting these images onto the page and kind of using that uh, as a way to um, oh what's the way to say this as sort of like you're holding the image on the paper in front of you if that makes sense. Well, thanks a lot, Glenn. I've said, like, it's in, for six years, it's been my excuse for why I'm so horrible at drawing. So, <laughs> so uh, thanks, I went bud. and watched this incredible video where he does, um, he w- walks through his process of, like, drawing Ariel, but he uses, like, a VR headset as he goes and then draws it in 3D in real time. Uh, as it's going and if you look at it uh, from the wrong angle it definitely does look like just these scribbles but then you see kind of the way that uh, he's putting this together and it's just uh it's an incredible thing and uh you know he's created some of the most i would say uh, even the most iconic uh animated characters of all time just one of the one of the tops one of the greatest animators that uh has ever lived uh, and uh, it's just an incredible thing to, to see his work, uh, and that this film was kind of one of his one of his earliest works as well. It's so funny that he did Rapunzel as well because I was when I was rewatching 
part of your world right before the show, I was watching the way her hair moved under the water and thinking, oh, it's kind of like they were training for Rapunzel. (laughs) Right, yeah, so... Um, yeah, and they, uh, he talks about Rapunzel in that video as well. And, um, it's great. He has this video that shows like their test footage of working on Rapunzel and trying to get the hair to work. Um, and they had computer, computer modeled the hair, uh, and the hair was just like all over the room. And every time she moved, it was just like going on its own, like doing all kinds of wild random stuff. And he's like, yeah, it was, it, it took us a while to get it there. Yeah, so, I, would, I would guess so. It's good stuff. All right. So, so... there we go. So we're, uh, yeah, that took us about five minutes to get through all of that. So I think it's time to start talking about the movie. Yeah, excellent. Let's do it. Uh, so our first scene is yours, although if you hadn't picked it, I would have obviously picked it. But I'll let you go ahead and start. Yeah, so our first scene here um, is, uh, are all of our scenes songs here? No, not the last one. Okay, Not the, the last one, yeah. The first scene here is probably the central song of the entire film um Mm -hmm. part of when ariel sings part of your world and so the setup of the story what's happening is um uh ariel is she's just kind of like had a fight with her dad about going to the surface and she's feeling really down about uh you know that she can't be a human and that she can't uh she can't be part of that world so she goes into this cave where she has hidden all kinds of trinkets and thingamabobs and just little toys and, uh, you know, forks and whatever it might be. Just little things uh, from the human world. And she has this cavern where they're all there. Um, and she kind of lays down on this rock and she sings about how she wants to be part of the human world and she wants to essentially that she wants to she wants to be human or that she at least wants to be uh be where the people are and uh then she goes through this song and she sings this i want song about uh what it is that she wants to have by the end of the film yeah, and this was this was not an innovation for musical theater, but this was an innovation for the Disney musical. This was one of the major things that our our boy Howie brought over from the musical theater. Um, if you, it, it's actually kind of funny because Sleeping Beauty or not Sleeping Beauty, Snow White actually kind of did have an "I Want" song, uh, but I believe the majority of the rest if not all of the rest just don't (laughs) and they just don't have a protagonist lay out their their major want for the movie and after this it's going to become a staple and not not only is this (laughs) not only was this the one for the first disney one or the the trailblazing disney one in Every musical theater 101 class I have ever been in, I think it's always the first song cited when people are explaining what an I Want song is. They say, oh yeah, like Part of Your World from Little Mermaid. Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and it's, uh, this is another one of those, it's just it, Howard Ashman had this insight and the way that he talks about it, it uh, of, you know, that you have this girl that comes in and she comes and she 
uh, sings what she wants, usually on a chair, you know, sitting on a chair and bears her soul to the world. And you fall in love with her instantly for the rest of the movie and you'll go through hell for her to, cause you just want her to get what she wants. Um, and this song is so good. Uh, it, it's just, uh, it's incredible how good this song is. It is really superbly crafted, but uh, before I spent, before I turn this into the Zach Talks About Howard Ashman's Lyrics podcast, um, there are a couple other things that I think are really clever here. As you said, on stage, the I Want song, gen- not always, but generally will more resemble a park and bark um as you said where they sit on a chair and sing but that is not what they did for this for part of your world they correctly realized that that was not going to hold the kids attention and so the whole thing is meticulously directed and meticulously choreographed to be showing off the different uh parts of her cavern you want thingamabobs? I got 20. And then she has 20 corkscrews or whatever. And, but they, it, it's, e- it would be, it would have been easy enough for the song just to be showing different places in her cavern. But they interspersed it with Sebastian, who snuck in. And you see, so you see Ariel loving the part the different parts of her cavern and then but you also see sebastian discovering it and getting trapped in it and i i was pretty surprised because i've listened to the soundtrack so many times and haven't watched the movie at how many sebastian sounds are layered on top that they cut from the soundtrack yeah (laughs) yeah it's a lot it's a lot uh i noticed that as well this time and it's just he's constantly through the whole thing just like terrified or you know uh, surprised by all the stuff that's in there. Um, and it adds, I think it, it's really useful for, uh, you know, having that kind of straight man effect where you're seeing, mm-hmm. um, she's, you know, loves these things, but Sebastian is showing his fear of the same things. And it just, this, uh, foil that these characters are providing for each other brings out the love that she has for, for all this human stuff in such a, such a beautiful in such a beautiful way yeah and i think the it's easy to see the universality of a song about someone who loves something that is hated or not understood by the community that she was born into um i don't think you have to do a lot of uh soul searching to see how a gay man in the late 80s, mid 80s, would uh, connect to that story. Yeah. It's a... You know, for me, my this cavern just impacts me so much like every time I see it. This is a moment that I tear up at every time. Mm-hmm. I'm tearing up now as we're talking about it. Yeah, um, I'm watching him. Um, so... Like for me, I, um, I grew up in a very conservative place, um, as you know, from when I was nine years old up until I graduated from high school and it was very hard, uh, to grow up in a community that just despises you. Um, I remember, uh, 
there was this kid in high school. This is a moment that is just like seared into my memory. Um, and I remember him telling me that uh, he thought that it was, you know, the morally correct thing to murder all gay people. Literally, he told me this to his to my face. Um, and so this is like the kind of uh, community I when I hear Ariel uh, singing about this and think about it um, and her experience as a mer person that wanted to go to the world with the people. Um, I just connect with it so much. And this idea of a cavern with all of the little things that she collected for me, it was a, um, it was a cassette tape that I had recorded over the top of, um, some country music singer. I can't remember who it was. I had recorded over the top of this cassette tape with Prince songs. Um, and it was in my car and, you know, I wasn't allowed to listen to Prince. And so I'd go out and drive out into the desert by myself and plug in this cassette and listen to Prince songs. And uh, for me, that was my cavern. That was my part of your world cavern. Um, and I just, I love this song. And it just touches me so deeply every single time that I hear it. Yeah, I think the most important part of it is where you are right now relaying that story. That's where Ariel starts the song. She starts the song extremely sad and dejected and defeated, but she doesn't stay there. Like, she stays there mm-hmm. for, like, <laughs> maybe not even two bars of music. And then the entire song becomes hopeful and it becomes joyous, and she is just able to create this, for herself, the world that she wants to live in, the world that she wants to be in. And yes. it's successful. It works on the audience. They want to be there too. It's true. It's true. And it's a, along these lines, you said that she's like creating this world she wants to be in. One of the things that I find so fascinating about this is so much of what she's doing here is performing humanity. Um, mm-hmm. You know, she's uh, at this time, she's not human, but she desperately wants to be. And so she's performing things like when she's walking down the street with flounder and that image like sticks in my head so clearly how she's like swaying her hips. She doesn't have yeah. hips really, but she's doing it as if she were strolling down the street. Um, and, What's that word uh, again? <laughs> exactly. Um, and it's just this is what she's doing. She wants all these things so that she can perform this part of her personality that is there deep down inside her, uh, that the rest of her community just is unwilling to accept. Yeah. The, so I'll talk just a little bit about the construction of the lyrics for the song and the construction, um, of the song itself that I love so much. Um, the lyric, the this construction in the verses themselves, where she is starting to talk and she does it three times. Uh, da, 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 da. What's that word again? Street. And why does it? What's the word? Burn. And this is this is writing so yeah. that it it is so specifically musical theater and is so specifically musical theater aesthetic and Jody Benson does a great job delivering these lines I think an actress without musical theater experience would have just trucked straight on through it but it's mm-hmm. the full the full thought is present there and it's a uh, colloquialism that Oscar Hammerstein created for the theater in 1927 when he wrote the lyrics for 
Bill, I mean, he wrote a bunch of other lyrics, but the lyrics in Bill are the ones that I think of specifically. And I think there's like a um, direct marrying between him writing because he's rest. I don't know. Um, and with what Howard did in this song. And it's just, it's great. It works so nicely. It does. It really does. Uh, but my favorite lyric in the entire movie is in the bridge of this song and it is just <laughs> it is internal rhyme after internal rhyme so i'm just going to run it down what would i give if i could live out of these waters so you have the internal rhyme of give and live what would i pay to spend a day pay and day warm on the sand bet you on land land rhymes with sand they understand triple rhyme sand land stand but they don't reprimand, quadruple rhyme, their daughters. And I love this line because I think it connects to the next song we're going to talk about, Under the Sea, when he's talking about how uh, the grass is always greener, the seaweed is always greener. Because in this moment, it just hits me every time I listen to it. It's like, oh, Ariel, you don't understand at all. They definitely reprimand their daughters. <laughs> like, <laughs> the perfect world that you are imagining does does not happen. So anyway, uh, continuing it's true, on. It's true, it's true. And I love this rhyme. Bright young women, sick of swimming. So women and swimming. And then the coup d'etat, ready to stand, and. So just to run down all those ands, we had... Sand, land, understand, reprimand, ready to stand, and. So that's a sextuplet rhyme carrying through the entire bridge. And it's just, it flows so well. It's so superbly crafted. And then it also has that dagger in the middle where you just understand that she's completely misunderstanding what's happening on the surface. Well, and that, you know... That dagger is also uh, formally called out because it rhymes with waters, right? Daughters and waters. Oh, I missed uh, so, that. Yeah. Yeah. So Howard Ashman, he's seen this. And uh, I think that's part of what he's going for because, like you said, it's, it's this idea of like under the waters uh, comparing to being on land and uh, and that she's misunderstanding the situation. I think that, that he's seen the same thing that you're seeing on that line mm-hmm. and calling it out in the rhyme. Yeah, and I'm sure anyone who knows this song was listening to me go over these lyrics, and there is just a forward propulsion because of all those internal rhymes that just brings you out of the bridge into the final triumphant verse and chorus, and it is it's why it's a song that defined our generation. The, it is. It like, is. You go back and read. There are a ton of articles out there of people re-watching this movie as adults and talking about how formative they are. And I think I read three or four talking about this song and how, like, they can't hear the word thingamabob or <laughs> uh, <laughs> without, without ending up on this song. It's true. You know, that that's it for me as well. You know, it's uh, uh, every time I hear the word thingamabobs, I got 20 um, every single time. Uh, my favorite lyric on the on in this one um, is almost right at the beginning, uh, right as she kind of gets started. She just lays down on this rock and says, "I want to be where the people are," mm-hmm. uh, and 
it's such a simple line. It's so simple, and the simplicity is really a big part of what makes it beautiful, and Jody Benson's delivery on that line is just incredibly good. Um, it's uh, And it's not big. It's so subtle uh, in the way that it's performed, and... I don't know. I love this. I love this song so much. This is also one of the ones that Glenn King talks about because it. I think it's the most beautifully animated uh, part of the entire film as well. Uh, and the way that the light is cascading down through the cavern as she's like drifting downwards uh, is just blows me away. And it has the water effects where it's creating like this distortion as the light is coming through as she's coming down. Uh, but there's this moment where he talks about where she goes up to like that hole that's at the top and she reaches out um, and he described it as Ariel. The way that he drew it was Ariel reaching out towards the human world to be part of their world. And then the way that it's depicted and the way it's animated is if Ariel is reaching out of the screen towards the mm. audience. Uh, and so he talks about that. um there was a kid that came up to him one time and talked to him when he saw that saw it when he was four years old. And when Ariel reached out with her hands, the kid stood up in the theater and reached out towards Ariel to pull her out of the screen and bring her into his world. And uh, all of the pieces of this, it's you know, it's not just the music or the lyrics and uh, or the performance. It's everything comes it's together the gestalt, yeah. so masterfully. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, uh, while we're talking about that whole. Uh, uh, why does she have the trap door at the bottom? Why don't they just swim in through the hole at the top? What are they doing? Yeah, I know, right? So, I don't know, you know. You gotta do what you gotta do, I guess. So I, I suppose so. I feel like uh, swimming, swimming through the top would be a lot more inconspicuous than moving this... Who knows Giant how boulder. heavy it is? Yeah, slime. but they wouldn't have gotten the gag of Sebastian getting stuck in the door. No, so, it's you a know. good. It's a good gag. That's for sure. <laughs> so yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. All right, let's uh, <laughs> let's move on to the next scene here, which is one that I had picked, and that's under the sea. Um, so this is the production number where Sebastian is convincing Ariel. Ariel. I've always said Ariel, but I realized watching uh, Sebastian it time... pronounces it Ariel. Oh, he does. Okay, so yes, cool. Sebastian can... specifically pronounces it that way multiple right. times. So, Sebastian and me uh, with Ariel, <laughs> um, and so there are so many things that I love about this number, but something that I had not picked up on until I watched the movie this time, until I watched it as an adult, is that. Before Sebastian becomes a child wrangler, he's the court composer. And yep. the I didn't recognize that Sebastian is a musician, and that's what ties everything together for him. He's conducting them at the beginning when they're singing. Uh, that's why he gets mad, because they ruin his uh, moment to be an ascendant musician. And then in this song... Uh, He's conducting all of the sea animals, and then later he'll uh, conduct, create the musical atmosphere that Scuttle is unable to create with his uh, amazing... (laughs) Warbling. Melodious warbling. Yeah. Yes. And I think it would have been... Like, this is clearly slated to be a production number. It's clearly 
supposed to be there for entertainment. So you see all the fish, you see them playing instruments. But I think what is so great about it is you see the plotting of it. So it's not just a production number. And you see yeah. Sebastian start where he's talking to Ariel and there's give and take between the two of them. And he is really trying to convince her. But then about halfway through the song, he forgets about Ariel. And he is <laughs> all about making his song. And he is conducting his symphony. And he is making those fish those fish. He is dance focused on his crustacean band. Yep, crustacean band. Which I have to... It is a lyric that has been stuck in my head since I watched it. I think I, I, think I love it. But I'm I I I did bump on it because I'm like you do not pronounce it crustacean, and I <laughs> I like Howard Ashman is so deliberate. I have to imagine it was de- deliberate, and I can write it off as uh, it might be part of the the accent, um, or it could just be a, an affectation by by Sebastian. Uh, yeah, I think you know. Um, I, I think probably a big part of that is from the performance of, uh, of the actor Samuel E. Wright, and mm-hmm. he just, you know, he has such a good performance, and, uh, with his Jamaican accent, uh, as it's coming through, I don't know, I have, I have to imagine that that's a part of it, along with Howard Ashman, just, Howard Ashman loves words, and, yeah. uh, you know, he probably just loved pronouncing it that way just for fun. Um, and so it's probably a mixture of the two of those. And <laughs> speaking of him loving words, this is <laughs> the... So whereas the verbal wordplay, I think, in um, part of your world, it's subtle. All those internal rhymes are subtle. If you are not paying attention... I think they just work on you under the hood and you don't think about what he's doing. Under the sea is very different. Under the sea takes every single sea animal that you want and finds <laughs> whatever they rhyme with for their instrument. The newt plays the flute, yes. the carp plays the harp, the place pays the ba- plays the bass, uh, bass, brass, chub, tub, uh, and the fluke, and the fluke is, is the, the Duke, Duke of Soul. soul. <laughs> And this, I mean, you want to show off your verbal dexterity? You want to do uh, some lyrical fireworks? Uh, this is this is the song for you. But the and, one, you know, if there's any song in this film that's like a Howard Ashman song, this is the one. If you go and listen to the things he does in everything else, this kind of like wordplay where he brings in uh, so many different words from so many different. Um, uh, categories and languages and pu- blends them together and rhymes them in ways that are just so unique and creative. This is his jam. It really is. Yeah, and I also love We What the Land Folks Love to Cook Under the Sea, We Off the Hook because we get the double meaning on Off the Hook. We get both mm-hmm. We Didn't Get Captured by the Fishing Rod and We're Off the Hook. Um, yeah. Off the Wall. We're crazy. Um well, and, uh, off the hook, just uh, used, uh, you know, uh, metaphorically for uh, you've gotten away with something, too. Yes, gotten um, away with something, not uh, not off the wall. Yes, thank you. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know. I think it's uh, a little bit of all of this, especially this idea of, uh, you know, <laughs> they start a massive party here right right, right away, right after that moment um, while Ariel is gone and Sebastian is just, you know, directing away, conducting his crustacean band. Yeah, and the, I mean, the choreography is fantastic and it's extremely musical. Um, we see Sebastian play the steel drums on some tortoises. We see him play a kit and hit a cymbal with the with the orchestration. And boy, oh boy, is the band kicking here. It is just such a great orchestra track uh, down to the somewhat bizarre, I do have to admit, uh, 80s hand claps at the start of the tune. But uh, they're in the midst, in the instrumental pretty sure it's a trombone solo i didn't write it down but there is a trombone solo that it it has to be a trombone that is just so great and the band just sounds awesome it's really it does it really is good and even like the way they end so abruptly as they're all like pointing back at ariel and just uh i don't know it's a uh it just cuts off and you're like oh well we've found ourselves in a pickle um it's it's so good i love this one and it's so intricate um the animation and the music everything blends together so well it's it's such a great song yeah and i think uh i think this was the song i have it in my notes but i don't fully remember there was a song that ends it's not on the it ends a different way in the movie than on the album the song ends and then sebastian has a line somebody's got to nail that girl's fins to the ground and then the button happens i think it's this song but i don't remember yeah, yeah. for it's sure it is this one yeah it's this one um, uh he says that same line afterwards this is after the music ends um and they're like trying uh no 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 he doesn't say that there he says it earlier in the film but uh i'm pretty sure that this is the song where that happens yeah and then there's a big button <laughs> it's like oh that's the end of the song i forgot that was the end of the song because it's not not on the album oh oh and i do want to say the other thing that i really noticed this time it happens in this song um it starts with the seaweed is always greener on somebody else's lake i think one of the things they do so well in this movie and it's through the whole thing is every single land to sea substitution that they do is so understated they don't wink they don't mug to the audience it's just if you're an adult if you're paying attention you're gonna get it or if you're a precocious kid you're going to get it but if not they don't care they don't need to make sure that you understand how clever they are and i think i think that was a unique innovation for them um well for this film in particular for that line um the seaweed is always greener in somebody else's lake i heard that line before i ever heard anyone say the grass is greener um and so you know and it just was naturally natural to me i'm like oh yeah that's the saying the seaweed is always greener until you know i went around saying that until someone was like listen you know it's the grass is always greener you're just uh they changed it up for little mermaid and i was shocked to learn this there are a lot of others, like, in dialogue, but I can't find any in my notes, so. Uh, trust me, there's a lot, and they're great. <laughs> they, they are. They're very good. 
Uh, do you have anything else to say about Under the Sea? I don't. I All don't right. have anything else. What do we got next? So the next one is another just uh, absolute banger of a song. Um, we have Poor Unfortunate Souls. One of the best villain performances of a song ever. And this is um, just such an incredible song. So for the story, what's happening is uh, Ariel has decided to go and meet with Ursula the Sea Witch uh, in order to make a bargain to become human. And Ursula just puts on a show for her in order to convince her to enter this bargain. And... The performance is just iconic, and uh, it is just whenever I'm thinking of Little Mermaid, uh, and uh, whenever I hear this line, it is impossible not to just do it. Poor unfortunate souls, and just get all that performance in there. Um, I think of it about this all the time because we play Disney Cena, and there's a card called Poor Unfortunate Souls, mm-hmm. and I have to sing it every time we come to the line, um, and. Ursula does such a good performance on this one. Yep, uh, she does. And uh, this was another big um, big contribution by Howard Ashman. They were really trying to nail down what their villain was going to be like. And Howard Ashman pushed for Ursula to be modeled off of Divine, um, a drag legend at the time, who I think the original hope was for Divine to voice the character, but um, that uh, I think, unfortunately, Divine maybe passed before before they were able to do that. Um, either way, either way, they weren't able weren't able to get them. That 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 sounds that sounds like the storyline. Um, uh, though Pat Carroll just incredible performance on this mm-hmm. uh on this song and she just has such a unique voice that fits the character so well it's hard to imagine uh it's hard to imagine another voice besides pat carroll for this and well, i think it was written in tandem because we it is a very burlesque oh yeah for style sure. song and it uh i i'd imagine until they landed on <laughs> what what the character was going to be uh alan alan menken probably had not had not written the song yet and so it was conceived in tandem i would imagine yeah i think so um and the they had upwards of 50 characters designs for for ursula that they're trying to figure out and it's uh the the character that they worked on and redesigned the most in the entire film just over and over and radically different kinds um they couldn't figure out what kind of fish to have Ursula based on. And so they redrew it with just uh, all kinds of different fish and different sizes and uh, all the things that they, that they tried with Ursula and then finally settle on this squid. And uh, I love the character design of Ursula so much. Uh, She is just wonderful. Yeah, and it's clear that they did too. Like this yes. song, and there are some of the most uh, brazen shots, I would say, in this song in particular, but also of Ursula. I think of her using whatever the clam is to put her lipstick on, 
and oh, yeah. you you get a lot of shots of like just her silhouette and her mouth and they're uh they're bold they're choices and they work and they're fantastic they are and one of the things that i find fascinating about uh ursula is she is a woman that is completely secure in her sexuality just uh she it, she oozes sexuality in this film uh hopefully that's appropriate for like a squid um uh but she just she yeah hashtag yeah, sexy sure. squids um it's it's a lot of this just is you know i think of that thing where she says body language and she really knows how to use mm-hmm. her body and perform um you know perform femininity in this one and she's kind of uh working through with ariel this this performance uh of humanity and femininity that uh, and it's it's entrancing the way that she puts it together yeah and i think this is probably a good place to talk about um there's been a lot of discussion over how disney at this time we talked a little bit about it in princess bride um their villains are all queer coded um the uh ursula jafar mufasa probably maybe well not mufasa scar yep definitely not mufasa scar yeah thank you yeah that would have been bad to have that go out and the one that's kind of from that time period that maybe is a little bit of an exception is Gaston, who seems to be um, mm. extremely, uh, you know, <laughs> cishet bro, yeah, yeah, coded, a lot of machismo there. So. Yeah, I think the big difference there is he's human. I mean, I guess Jafar ostensibly is as well, but... Uh, yeah, <laughs> doesn't yeah. seem that. Well, and also it's a bit of a foil with with Belle, um, and uh, but we can talk about Beauty and the Beast at some point. When some we other Beauty time, and the yes. Beast. Yeah. So, and I think you had some interesting stuff on how we can view that. Yeah. Um. So, I was doing a lot of research on this one, and one of the things that I came across that was a really interesting article about, um about this story was talking about watching the little mermaid through a trans lens um as in a transgender lens um and looking at ariel and the way that she wants to be she's not comfortable with her body and she wants her body to be different she wants to have legs specifically um and her entire goal is to be able to be part of this other world um and she has this kind of uh she sees herself in a lot of ways she sees herself as human um and all that she desperately wants is is to resolve this it, it, I, a lot of times throughout the film it makes the point people state to ariel that she wants to become human in order to get the man um and ariel never voices that um and she never reflects that uh when when they say it to her she always is putting this idea that she wants to be human and she wants to experience this um and i think that once we kind of understand it from this perspective uh this song poor unfortunate souls um has 
you know, th this idea of the, the transformation that she is going through, and it's a very difficult uh, uh, transformation that she goes through. There's um, uh, pain and difficulty in it, but she's willing to go through all of this because it matters so much to her that um, her physical body matches the identity that she feels within herself. Um, so I think that's one thing. Uh, I, I do think it's important to understand uh, with Ursula, a character that is based on um, the performer Divine. Uh, Divine was a drag queen, but that's not the same thing as a person who's transgender. Um, it's um, uh, the performer uh, that performs as Divine. I can't remember his name, but, um, you know, he was a gay man and he performed in drag uh, when he did uh, the Divine performances. Uh, it's, but I do uh, think. Harris that... Glenn Milstead. Yes, Harris Glenn, Glenn Milstead. Um, but I do think that there's that we're supposed to be reading a little bit into um, into Ursula the the way that she's kind of helping Ariel understand the performance um, uh, of gender um, and in a lot of ways this is what Ursula is doing is teaching uh, teaching Ariel how to perform humanity and gender uh, as she's going through this transformation. Uh, well. Thank you for hitting the pitch that I threw at you, but I also meant to throw a different pitch uh, because I thought this was where we were going to talk about uh, paranoid reading and re reparative reading. Did yeah, you want yeah, to talk yeah. about it's that a, later? Uh, no, I want to talk about that here as well, but okay. I wanted to uh, introduce that as well. And so, um, uh, so the other thing that we see in this one um, and that I think it really helps us as we're looking at uh, poor unfortunate souls. We uh, had looked a little bit at um, the writings and like theory of um, a gender scholar named Eve Sedgwick, who uh, introduces this idea of um, paranoid reading versus reparative reading. Um, and she has a lot of different other things that she contributes. She writes a book um, a year after this film comes out. Uh, the, her, her book is released. Uh, called the epistemology of the closet um, that is talking about the way that we um, uh, interpret media and uh, stories and all of these things uh, through a um, like a queer critical lens um, through um, understanding the fluidity and uh, the lack of a binary in sexuality uh, so that's a major part of uh, of her writing um, one of the other things that she talks about is this idea of reparative and paranoid reading. And to, to just to sum this up in a very simplified version, uh, paranoid reading is when you are uh, looking, you're doing criticism of a film, and you are looking for all the parts that are bad or harmful in the story. Uh, just going through and finding all the things that are wrong with something. Um, that is a valid way to approach criticism, and people have do been doing it for ages. Oh, and so there's good nothing. At that. What's that? I'm so good at looking at things that way. <laughs> and it's, uh, I don't want to say that it's easy because I think it's really important for people to see the harm that can be caused by different pieces. Uh, but it's also um, a very, at, at the time, it was a very common kind of dominant way to approach literature. Uh, and she talks about uh, approaching things from a reparative reading, which is when you're looking for the things that are healing uh, or that are helpful in the text. Um, and that's where these two things kind of combine. Um, I, uh, 
it's really easy for us to, and it is the dominant way that people have understood uh, the Little Mermaid. I think for the last forty years or thirty years is reading it from a feminist perspective, which is a completely valid and important way to understand it and seeing uh, some of the uh, the harm that is uh, put together in some of these stereotypes is, um, or some of the ways these characters are put together, especially with Ariel surrendering her voice uh, to, to Ursula and then Ursula representing kind of femininity in general. And that, that reading is important and is valid. Um, but I think that also there is an entire generation of people that connect to this um, particularly through um, LGBT, queer, and trans lenses. And um, for me, and I think for a lot of other people, we find this film and like um, this performance and so many other parts of this film to be healing and just connecting and empathetic uh, in a way that so many other films are not. And I think it's important to, to be able to take the healing and helpful things out of the text as well as understanding the things that are harmful um, and uh, negative within the text. Yeah, when when you and I were talking about these two different lenses before the show, um, or earlier today, it really helped me place some of my feelings for this because I've had both conversations with um, gay people, with queer people, about this movie, I have had the conversation about how horrible it is that Disney's only gay repu- reputation, Disney's only gay representation at this time was in villains, and that it was basically teaching people that gay people were bad and that that's a bad thing to do. And obviously, it's hard to. Uh, it's hard to argue with that. Uh, gay people aren't all villains and bad. Um, But I've also had the conversation with people where they were thrilled to see themselves on screen or see a character who it felt like represented their aesthetic or what they felt or someone that they connected with. And Disney was not going to put a gay hero on stage in the 80s. And if this was the representation that they could get, then that was meaningful to people and they you know they even they didn't even really uh put gay creators on stage um and it was you know there were conversations with these people um the people that were involved in making this film that if their sexuality were to come out in the press that they would uh be immediately terminated from the studio uh, and that's important context to understand. You know, the understanding the closet and the way that it is affecting the, how they are telling this story, and that you have these people that are desperately trying to work in uh, their uh, their aesthetic and personalities and their identities into a film, and kind of scrapping for every bit that they can uh, to to get it in front of people so that they can see it. Um, I, I think that's essential to understanding. Ursula, but also this film. Yeah. So, yeah, so these two different, basically opposite lenses, as someone who's a straight, cis, white male, um, like, it gives me... I don't want to deny either of those uh, 
different groups of people their experience with this movie but so being able to have the two lenses allows me to feel both ways about the movie and it allows me to view both things as true and view the problematic stuff as problematic and uh, also appreciate what was groundbreaking and what was what passed for representation at the time yeah it's a it's you know it is a fascinating one and it is such a this film is such a part of uh the identities of millennials in so many different ways it's just it's hard to it's impossible to imagine um the way that people's millennial identities would have formed without this uh this film existing in the zeitgeist um i just i can't i can't even comprehend what that would look like exactly um i do have one other thing to add about this oh sure sequence, sure, sure though yeah uh and this is kind of a big one as well so um this is uh, uh specific to my experience watching this film um and watching it with my daughter and i've watched it several times with her um and um my daughter's best friend uh is a person who doesn't speak. She voluntarily uh, doesn't speak. Um, and so the representation with Ariel, you know, so many times as people are watching this film and they see Ariel and her voice get taken away, the dominant reading of this is that she gives up her voice and there's so much criticism of this film as, you know, they have this female character and she spends the last half of the movie not even speaking. Um but when I watched it with my daughter and thinking about these kinds of perspectives, I, I think this uh, th reading this from a disabled perspective is also really important and essential to understanding uh, the character of Ariel and the idea that was being put forward in this movie. Um, and talking it over with my daughter um, and uh, coming to, you know, uh, as we discussed, the idea that Ariel loses her voice, but she's still able to communicate. She still has a voice, even if she is not able to speak. Um, and, um, you know, this friend of, of my daughter's, um, is just, you know, such a sweet girl and she's so expressive. Uh, and they are, it, they are able to communicate the two of them. It, it, it's almost like they've developed their own language in a lot of ways. Um, I think they probably have. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, they are so good at reading just like subtle body language in so many different ways. And, you know, they will communicate by writing or by body language. And uh, the two of them uh, really help each other. Um, and uh, it's, it's just understanding the film from that perspective really affects the way that I view it now because of those experiences. Um, and I think it, it, it can be, uh, I, I think it's important to understand this part with Ariel. She doesn't lose her voice. She doesn't lose her power. She loses her ability to speak, but she doesn't lose her personality and her ability to communicate. Uh, and she still does that throughout the next 25 minutes of the film where she is without a speaking voice. Um, it is at exactly 45 minutes where her voice is taken. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is at um, an hour and 10 minutes, I believe, an hour and 10 minutes where she gains her voice and then sings when the shell cracks open. Yeah, so I this segues us into the last part of the movie that I wanted to talk about here. And I think I probably 
uh, divvied up the movie incorrectly when I spoke at the beginning saying the last third of the movie was worse than I remembered because I I actually had no problem with um, the majority of the time that actually the entire time that Ariel didn't have her voice. I felt like she was still an active character and she was still making decisions and moving the plot forward and trying to do what she was doing. Um, so I wanted to talk about from when Triton signs the contract through to the end of the movie, because this is the climax of the movie. But mm-hmm. from here is where I felt like Ariel loses all of her agency because it's yeah. there are three decisive moments that happen here from here to the end of the movie and none of them are Ariel. So the first one is Triton deciding to sacrifice himself for his daughter. He's the one who makes the sacrifice, which is generally something that we associate with the protagonist. And then <laughs> Ursula uh, gets the pow- gets the crown and becomes all powerful and goes up to the surface and who is the one who slays Ursula? Definitely not Ariel. It's Prince Eric. Prince Eric is the one who takes the boat and jams it through. Uh, <laughs> really graphic, by the way. <laughs> I, I did not remember yeah. it, and I was not expecting that. It's quite intense. Um, well, and additionally, while he's doing that, um, Ariel, there's been a whirlpool made, and Ariel is on the ocean floor. Not even in water. It's just ground because it's made this whirlpool. And so she's completely helpless in this moment. Um, And she can't even really move. Um, And then uh, Eric comes over, grabs onto the boat, steers it over, and jams it into into Ursula's side. Yeah, they just incapacitated their protagonist. And it's like... I, I, I didn't think about it long enough to come up with solutions for what would be better here, but it, it just felt like they didn't trust their female protagonist enough to to carry the climax of this movie. So anyway, Eric, Prince Eric kills Ursula, and then the last sacrifice that happens is Triton's the one who basically sacrifices his daughter for her happiness he's the one who makes the final sacrifice and says yeah i she should be the one who is happy and i'll have to live missing her and i just found i i said the final third of the movie i think this was the last 10 minutes of the movie and so ultimately it just doesn't matter all that much at all other than i guess endings probably matter for the story you're trying to tell um yeah but it yeah it's it's a bummer to not have and i think this this sequence is what holds it back from being you know i have this film very high but it's also um just it doesn't make it into an upper echelon that it was totally capable of doing Mm -hmm. and i think this sequence is what holds it back um, so I totally agree on that. I do think there is a little bit different way that we can read the moment where Triton, um, uh, at the very end of the film, he, uh, 
uses his magic to transform Ariel into human. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I find, you know, one thing that I think about this is he had the ability to make her dreams come true for the entire movie. <laughs> um, Bro. He just has the magical power to transform her into a human at any moment. Um, and it's, you know, he goes on this journey to where he can finally understand how important to her that it is her identity is as a human. Um, that's how she wants to live. That's how she wants to be. And he just takes so long to come to grips with that. Um, and the way that it uh, delights her and just um, is exactly what she is wanting, where she is transformed, I think is really essential. But this moment uh, where Sebastian uh, is talking to Triton um, and Triton says, I'm trying to remember the line exactly. Um, he says... Um, Sebastian says, it's as I always say, you have to let children be free to live their own lives. Um, Triton says, oh, you always say that. Um, and then Triton says, I guess there's only one more thing, how much I'm going to miss her. Um, which is very sad for Triton. You know, he's going to miss his daughter a lot, but also she's not dying. (laughs) She's still going to be fine. And you know, it seems to me that this wedding, it, it doesn't look like it happens the next day. Earlier in the film, they'd said, hey, you know, it's difficult to get a wedding together on one day's notice. How about we take a couple of weeks? This is the, the um, what's the, Grimes, the butler, is that his name? Uh, says to Eric before. And Triton shows up with all the mer people and is able to come out of the water using his ma- his magic to come up and give her away essentially. Um, and I think that for me, as I'm reading this, I, you know, it is it is a normal thing that you'll hear from from parents when they when they are sending their children off into the world mm. that they're going to miss their kids so much. You know, it is just a part of the experience of kids growing up. And you just are going to miss them. But again, they're still part of your life. And I think that Ariel, you know, in my head canon, I think that Ariel is still a part of Triton's life. And they're still close. And I think actually their relationship is so much better after this. Um, For Triton, it feels like he's going to miss her. But it repairs their relationship at the same time that he gives her the thing that she always wanted, which is a validation of the identity that was inside her this entire time. Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's a good reading of it that they he finally sees her for who she is and who she wants to be. Um but it's still <laughs> the make Triton the protagonist, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's still it's still, you know, has its issues. It's not it's not like the issues go away. Um and I do I think this connects to our um previous conversation about the dichotomy of how you can view this movie because you can focus on this stuff for Ariel but there's also we didn't talk about it but there's also the scene in the movie she saves Prince Eric like he yeah. will die if she mm-hmm. doesn't bring him to shore and that is a heroic act and um the that was a big deal for this film at this time, you know. Moana and Brave hadn't happened yet. They probably wouldn't happen without... Well, they probably would, because the march of 
uh, history moves ever forward, we hope. Um, but, yeah. It's true, yeah. It's a, it is a complex movie. It's got a lot going on. Um, but, you know, there's so many good moments and so many difficult moments, and uh, I do really enjoy watching it every single time that I see it. Uh, do you have anything else you want to say about the climax here, or should we move into cleanup? We can move into cleanup, yeah. It's a, uh, I don't have anything else to add. All right, I just got, I just have two things. Um, so I'll do the first one. The, I did want to comment quickly on how much, I, I didn't think it was worth it to do a full segment on it, but how much I loved the prologue for this movie with it mm, starting yes. on the boat and you get to see the above world, the world that we know, and then the film opens up through the eyes of this escaped fish that yeah. goes out of the boat and the reveal of just the way they made the underwater world look and the first time you see a mermaid, and then when you see the mer folks uh, castle or kingdom or abode or whatever, it's just, it's glorious and it looks so good and it just, it feels fantastical. And I gotta say, it was so good in the movie theater. This is one of the moments that I remembered mm. as I was like picking through. I remembered seeing this and it just feels like you're going down under the ocean. It it just really really did feel like it and um that moment has stuck in my memory as like understanding what cinema could do i i that's a big uh, that's a really big concept for such a small moment but it really just transports you into another you're world. like this is the first movie i have ever seen and now i know what cinema can do it can take you into an entirely other world underwater. It's just, uh, it blew me away when I saw that. Yeah, I get it. I, so, I didn't, it's good stuff. Didn't mean to make light of it. No, 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 it's fine. Um, the the other thing that I wanted to add on, uh, there is this moment that uh, I think it's possibly, I'm not 100% sure, but it may be the best joke ever told in anything ever. Um, which is this <laughs> moment... <laughs> It's this moment where Ariel has just gotten her legs and she's like sitting in the water uh, and Scuttle comes and lands on her legs. Um, and he's just like bouncing there and he's like, hmm, something's different. I can't d tell what it is. And he's standing there on his legs, on her legs. And he says, I gotta admit, I can't put my foot on it right now. Um, and as his foot is literally standing on her legs, I'm sorry, that joke is amazing, and it is just wonderful. We did not mention how good, how well-crafted Scuttle's character is, and oh, how, Scuttle's character. how he propels the movie forward uh, all of the times that he needs to, so. Yeah, in very unorthodox ways. Um... I lied. I have two more things, but they're both very quick. The first okay. is, do you know how old Prince Eric is? I don't know, but the I tried not to think about the ages of the characters in this yeah, one. Yeah, because they definitely mention that Ariel is 16, which they do not have yes. to do and they should not do because Prince Eric does not seem anywhere near 16. And even if he was, they should not be getting married. And 
The... I think Prince Eric is 17. That's my headcanon. Okay, um, perfect. So he just had a birthday. He's okay. like six months older than she is. Um, <laughs> boy, I, I do oh boy, think, do I hope so. I do think if if you read this from like a queer trans perspective, there is some element of understanding that even though uh, Ariel is 16 and she's like young, she still understands her identity. But it doesn't change the fact that, I don't know, the ages are weird and I wish they wouldn't do... Um, you know, these protagonists, these these teenage girls that are so young marrying somebody that seems clearly a bit older, but, you know. Yeah, we didn't quite get know. into the whole one true love Disney issue, but we'll we'll have plenty of time to talk about that in the in the future. So in apologies future. if that was what you were looking for from this this podcast. Yeah. The and the last thing I wanted to say I think, and this is a very common trope in, I think, animated movies in particular, but they steered away from it for this one, and that is the hapless, villainous sidekick. But they did not do that that for this movie. Flotsam and Jetsam are very capable. And And they're scary as heck. They are super scary, and I I was kind of blown away by that moment where they they accurately lure Ariel to uh, to Ursula by playing hard to get. And that was a sophisticated moment for me. I was like, I don't think most uh, villain sidekicks would be portrayed that way. And I liked it. I liked it a lot. I do like that. That is good. Um, the other thing that I wanted to talk about and clean up, two more things, both of them very quick. Uh, the song Les Poissons. Um, is such a good and amazing song and we didn't get into it but it's wonderful and just all those moments where the chef is like trying to murder sebastian and it's such a good song and everyone should go you know listen to it uh watch it in particular um and then the other song you know there is a song we didn't get into it in a lot of detail um and but it is a, a really important moment in the film and parts of it have not aged super well is the song kiss the girl um and you know as you're watching the film there's a lot of context that's understood that uh, both of these characters in the film clearly are um at the point where they're about to kiss they clearly are both into it uh, but the song has this lyric that says uh, i'm trying to remember the lyric exactly it yeah goes, i have it here possible yeah. she want you to there is one way to ask her it don't take a word, not a single word. Go on and kiss the girl. And, you know, just people should understand that if you're going to kiss somebody, you should probably ask for them for... You should definitely... I don't want to say probably. I want to say definitely to stake a claim in the sand here. Um, uh, you should ask for consent before, you know, kissing somebody. Um and he could have done it here, too. It wouldn't have been that hard. It would have made the whole film a lot, you know, easier from Ariel's perspective and his perspective if he just, hey, hey, is it okay if I kiss you? And she could have nodded yes. They could have kissed. The whole thing could have been solved. All the, all this, you know, the entire last half of the film, Boom. the, the solved, no problems, uh, everything's figured out. Um, this is why consent is important uh, for everybody listening to the podcast. Stream it. A pro-consent podcast. Yes. Uh, do you have anything else for cleanup? I don't. I don't. Okay. I have a brand new segment for you. 
Are you excited? Let's do it. Okay, so this was the first movie that I'd watched for the podcast that Mary watched with me. And Ooh. so now we have a Mary Missive. It was something that she thought it was very important that I tell. She said, make sure you tell the podcast. The greatest bamboozle that Disney has ever pulled is making a generation of kids think that flounders are those cute little fishes. (laughs) When they are not. (laughs) I will put a link to what a flounder looks like in the show notes. And my poor wife apparently was scarred by this. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, we had this conversation. We had to stop in the middle because my daughter was like, what kind of fish is that? And I was like, I don't know. Let's look up. What kind of fish is flounder? And we got a flounder. And I was like, oh, it's not that one. Whatever that is. <laughs> it was terrifying. And we've eventually settled on that he's probably an angel fish. Yeah. Which I don't know. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> this is true. It's a, it's a good point. So that's, uh, hey. If, Great if, insights from Mary. If Mary is going to let me put aside the time to record the podcast and watch these movies, then if she has insight, uh, it, we get to share it in the Mary Missive segment. I love it. All right. So let's go ahead and wrap this up here. I'm sorry we ran a little long. We obviously had a lot to say about this movie. So if we ran too long for you, or if you thought it was a good length, you'd rather us say the stuff that we want to say, we definitely want to hear from you, your opinion on that, because as we've said before, it will inform uh, future episodes and the future of the podcast. So if you want to get in touch with us, you can find me on Twitter. I am at Zvazda, Z-V-A-Z-D-A. And Matt is? O-R-A-Y-M-W. Yep. And if you want to write an email to us, if you can't send us a letter by mail because I'm not giving out my address on the podcast. But if you want to write us an email, you can find us at podcaststreamit, just those three words, podcaststreamit at gmail.com. And we will hear from you there. So th- as we said, this is the end of our first season. We're going to say farewell to Disney+. Plus. I'm sure we will be back at some point, but it is time to gear up your HBO Max subscriptions because we're going to we're going to be going to the max. So uh, I'm not we we still don't quite know if we're going to have enough feedback to do a mailbag episode or not. So if we do have a mailbag episode, then I believe our first HBO episode will be. We'll take a week off, then do the mailbag, and then do HBO. So it would be one, two, three weeks after this episode. If we don't have enough for a mailbag episode, then it'll be two weeks after this episode. And we are going to start for HBO Max. We're going to start with The Matrix from 1999. So the that's, Matrix! That's going to be our first R-rated movie, and that'll be uh, quite a bit different than what we've had going on so far. So Yeah, it's a very exciting. Um, uh, it's it's a, another iconic one, and, you know... HBO's got a lot of interesting stuff on there for us to watch, and it'll be a very different, uh, di- very different um, feeling after coming from Disney Plus. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you have a closing question? 
I do. So right. I couldn't figure out how to word this exactly, so I'll explain it to you, and we can kind of uh, uh, you can ask me for clarification. Okay, but, English teacher. Yeah, I understand. Uh, Scuttle, um, you know, he whenever Ariel finds one of these objects, one of these trinkets from the human world, brings it up to Scuttle, and then he interprets um, what use that thing has. So I'm wondering. What is a human trinket that you would misinterpret as Scuttle does? Hmm. What a is a... One. I have the reverse of this, uh, but a human trinket that I would misinterpret as Scuttle does. Your question I... is the opposite of this. Yeah, it Ooh. is. Okay, interesting. We were both thinking on the same lines then. Uh, I think a battery. I think a, a battery. battery would be a good one. How could he comprehend what a battery does? Yeah, I don't know. Like, it's uh, probably think of it as, like, some kind of weapon or something like that. Yeah. Um, or, I don't know. It's a, You put it in curlers for your hair or something like that. Um, this is a good one. This is a good one. Um, let's see. I got to come up with something now. Um, what would we have here? Here, why don't I you ask know, my question, and then it can be the same answer, probably. Sure, sure. Let's do that. Okay, so he calls a fork a dingle hopper, and he's clearly called a corkscrew a thingamabob at one point. Yes. I'm going to give you the word doohickey. The word and, doohickey. Yeah. And what would what object would Scuttle call a doohickey? What object would Scuttle call a doohickey? Whew is a tricky one um i feel like if it's a doohickey that it's also got to do something um i think what i would settle on is it's gotta it's gotta have like something fiddly with it um good to have something fiddly the thing that i am coming to is like a plumber's wrench it has like that you can screw the top of it and move it around and yeah, you know that's good. Uh, do all of that stuff. That's what I'm coming to a plumber's wrench. Um, and I think that if uh, Scuttle were to see this, I think he would think it was used for extracting teeth. Mm, very good, very good. Yeah. Uh, I I think I would call a doohickey a just a nut and bolt. I love it. Yeah, it spins around the nut and bolt. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. All right. So that's going to do it for season one of Stream It. And we'll be back with HBO Max. HBO Max. All right. Bye. Bye.